Hofstra's morning wake-up call. Morning wake-up call. Lively talk. Long Island life. National news. International issues. Through the minds and mouths of Hofstra students. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. All thoughts and opinions stated here on the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call do not reflect the views of 88.7 FM WRHU and its management, Hofstra University, as well as its board of trustees. All contrasting views can be sent to programming at WRHU.org or to 111 Hofstra University, Hempstead, New York, 11549. Good morning, everybody. You're listening to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call, broadcasting live from the Richard Phillip Cavalero Studios over here at Hofstra University. You already know what it is already. It's Luke. It's Ronnie. It's Dallas. It's Jason. We're all here. And Bruno as well, uh, also shadowing today uh, for our morning show. But we're just going to get right into it. Dallas has some breaking news. Bum, bum, bum. Breaking news uh, to go and tell for us. So go ahead, Dallas. So this morning, according to CNN Republican Governor Ron DeSantis, is taking credit for sending two planes to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts as a part of the state's relocation program in which they send illegal immigrants to sanctuary destinations. Massachusetts is a sanctuary state. And so an estimated 50 migrants arrived on Martha's Vineyard Wednesday, according to Massachusetts State Democratic Senator Julian Sear. The plane arrived just after 3 p.m. and immigrants were picked up in a white van and taken to Martha's Vineyard Community Services. Um, in comments from Sears, she said that the, Islander, the island felt that they needed to scramble to respond and essentially set up emergency shelters because of how, small, uh, how short the turnaround time was and they felt a little unprepared. And this is not really a new thing because, we, as we talked about before, Republic, other Republican governors and senators such as Greg Abbott of Texas and Doug Ducey of Arizona have been sending migrants to uh, places such as Washington, D.C., as well as New York City and Chicago. So I just wanted to bring this up and bring it back around because there's a lot going on in the world when it comes to immigration and get you guys' thoughts and opinions. I feel like immigration is a touchy topic because, like, even it says, even for Ron DeSantis, a quote from uh, Chair Manny Diaz, even for Ron DeSantis, this is a new low, and that he'll do anything and will hurt anybody in order to score political points. If there's ever been a topic or a concept to get a leg up on the competition with, this is not it. Yeah, I find it, there's there's no other word for it other than just, yeah, it's disappointing. It, it's disappointing to see somebody take advantage of somebody else's less than fortunate situation in order to get some good press. And... Ironically enough, it backfired because now he's getting terrible press for mm-hmm. doing something like this. It's it's difficult to see because you want your politicians, the people that you, you know, you're going to put in power to at least be well-rounded, decent individuals. But then to go and use something like this to get popularity is a big step backwards. I also completely agree with you, Ronnie, because my big thing is the distance between Florida and Martha's Vineyard. Also, no offense to Martha's Vineyard. I'm from Massachusetts. It's kind of an obscure area to send people to, especially with Boston being a sanctuary city, all the resources that are available to them there. Again, I'm not sure of the reasoning why Martha's Vineyard was selected. Maybe there's something that I am not aware of currently. However, it doesn't feel right to be like, we're going to send you, I don't want to say across the country because it's just going up, but all that way away to the tip of Massachusetts, we're going to go to Martha's Vineyard, and you guys are just going to figure it out. I mean, okay, they say the you brought up the turnaround time, the short turnaround time. You could you, somebody could say, okay, you know, it's because of that short turnaround time that you had to scramble for a place to bring people, and so Martha's Vineyard ended up just being the place. But 
you said it yourself, the entire state of Massachusetts is a sanctuary state, so why not bring them to a place like Boston, although it may be more difficult, there is more readily, like, readily accessible resources for them there, and it makes the, well, it makes the turnaround, the preparation for them that much easier, mm -hmm. because they're in a spot that has access to all these things, to bring them to a place that I'm assuming, be, not being from Massachusetts, <laughs> a little bit more remote, is it's kind of it's, it's obscure 100 mm -hmm. percent. i completely agree with you i'm uh, i'm just going to say the statement that uh going to santa city issued at least i guess florida itself had issued on a statement from the article from cnn it says quote states like massachusetts new york and california will better facilitate the care of these individuals who they are invited into our into our country by incentivizing illegal immigration through their designation as quote sanctuary states and support for the Biden administration's open border policies. Any any reaction to that at all? Uh, being from Massachusetts, I do have a reaction from that. We are a sanctuary state. We do take pride in that, and that's a really big. Growing up, that was a really big thing. My parents taught me that it's everyone should be allowed in the United States because we are the United States of America. We are built on a country of immigrants. That is our history. So to get off to get off my soapbox a little bit. I feel as though demonizing sanctuary states or demonizing areas that welcome people from different backgrounds, different countries, no matter what situation they may be coming from, is inherently hurtful. It is kind of disrespectful. And it's also just, we are a country that is founded on immigrants, so we shouldn't be acting like, oh, you can't come here anymore. Like, you're not allowed here anymore, when that inherently contradicts our entire history. I completely agree. I think the term incentivizing illegal immigration is disrespectful just to just to like echo what you said it it's not illegal immigration it's migration or mm -hmm. seeking sanctuary that's mm -hmm. why it these places are called sanctuary states it's giving a bad name to something that has no that place has no negative that, connotation exactly mm -hmm. has no negative con connotation whatsoever but again it's ironic to have somebody saying incentivizing illegal immigration but then using that to try to push their own agenda and gain popularity mm -hmm. through their followers, it doesn't make any sense. It, it just doesn't track. The math's it. not mathing right now. No. It's not. I, it's a matter of what time will tell, I guess, in terms of how that affects Absolutely. him. If he does decide to run in 2024, I think it's probably going to depend on if uh, former President Trump goes and runs again. Mm -hmm. uh, but granted, you know, we never know how that's going to work. We don't work. really know what's going on over there. Nobody really ever knows. <laughs> you know, like a day could be something completely different than a week from now. You know, something big can just happen out of nowhere. Just like this. You know, we nobody had any clue this is going to happen. Uh, so definitely interesting to see how that works. But certainly, I think, like you said, there's a designation between obviously having immigrants come into the nation being, I mean, have anybody seen Hamilton? I mean, yep. come on, mm -hmm. we all know we're on immigrants, like Dallas said. Uh, so definitely, it should be understood that that's the case. And that's the reasoning for having something for America, that there is the understanding that we do have a lot of immigration, but also opportunity for that immigration uh, that can also be there as well. Uh, otherwise, I think we're going to head on to our first official story of the day. Uh, so, Ronnie, if you want to start us off over there. All right. All right. So on September 8th, 2022, Queen Elizabeth II, one of the longest reigning monarchs of our generation, tragically passed away. With her passing came some serious questions. And while discussing the possibility of the queen's death last week, we had taken some time to question what was the next plan for those who opposed the monarchy. Well, as of last Thursday, it had become apparent that despite offering condolences to the royal family, their overall goal stays the same. According to the New York Times, the most prominent anti-monarchy group known as the Republic has been quite vocal in the wake of the Queen's passing. Releasing a statement that acknowledged that the royal family had the right to mourn, 
and even went as far as to pledge to avoid comment for the immediate future. However, normal operations resumed on Saturday when the Republic criticized the accession of King Charles III, however, maintaining that, he st that they were still expressing every sympathy to King Charles as he mourns his mother. Republic Chief Executive Graham Smith put out a statement that read, quote, It's just a sensible thing to do, really. Let's all let this run its course, and we'll get into more serious things later, unquote. The anti-monarchists feel that this is the line that they should be walking in the early days following the Queen's death, as they should try to work out this opportunity, because they do not want to make the mistake of warning off possible supporters by appearing insensitive to the current situation. With that in mind, recent polling has shown that King Charles is not as popular as his late mother, and that this would be the most impactful time to take advantage of the current political situation. Taking a look at history, monarchs have gradually handed over power to parliament, but they still play a very important, even if mostly symbolic, role in the government. Despite this, the main objective of the anti-monarchists, like the Republic, stays the same, to do away with the monarchy and its involvement in government entirely, with the end goal of replacing the monarchy with an elected president. So what do you guys think? I do have a bunch of opinions on this. So to start off, all my condolences to the Queen, the Queen's family, and the entire country. Um, but I do think this is a perfectly tumultuous time for political contention. And again, this is a great tragedy. This is a global tragedy, seeing someone who has lived such a long and fulfilling life have it. And it is sad. However, I don't believe that people should be like attacked or criticized for taking the time to criticize the monarchy themselves. Because most of the criticism that I've at least seen online about the monarchy is from it as an institution. And it appears to be like really valid. Um, I remember in the wake of her death, people were balancing, like, paying their respects while also pointing out, like, all the flaws with the monarchy and the system that it operates on. And go going a little bit away from the UK base, I know that was the focus of this, I also think it's important to acknowledge all the countries in which the Queen and now the new King serve as, like, symbolic or political figureheads. And it's a direct result of, like, the UK's history of, like, colonization. Sorry, we have to talk about it. Um... I actually read an article that the Associated Press posted, and it was called I Cannot Mourn, and it was a commentary on how citizens of former colonies and even, like, current modern colonies can often have a really difficult relationship when it comes towards the monarchy. And I really think everyone should just take the time to, like, do a historical deep dive. I'm not giving you guys homework. I just think it's something that people should know about, about the monarchy and the queen specifically during her reign in places such as, like, Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean and how those countries are still directly affected by what happened all those years ago. So basically what I was just trying to say is that the queen died. It's sad that the queen died because she is a human being and we have a right to feel sad about that, but I don't subscribe to the saying like, don't speak ill of the dead, especially when there are things that are inherently right to criticize or even mm -hmm. like question or just think about. So that's my two cents. I mean, I can't say I'm, that I'm surprised by their reaction, but I am a little caught off guard. Like, it's nice to see that they're being respectful in the sense that they're holding their tongue for the time being and even offering their condolences to the royal family. However, I'm still <clears throat> really intrigued with their plan and what they mm -hmm. want to do for their next move. Objectively, this is the perfect situation to push their agenda and do what they want to do. You know, there's some political unrest, and if there's ever been a time to make a change, it'd be now. But how far are they willing to go mm -hmm. and how long are they willing to wait before it becomes, okay, we've sat too long or it's too early to do something too drastic. Mm -hmm. And even 
talking about going back to what you said about the you know political unrest of the UK as a whole or the other colonies. Actually, shout out to Bruno for bringing this up before we came on air. Uh, there is some talk of fray of the bonds in the mm. UK, especially with Ireland. Shout out Ireland for real. We know we have the IRA and you know the Northern Ireland that see themselves as Irish, and then the part the other portion of Ireland that sees themselves as members of the UK. We don't know if there's going to be a full split or is this going to just further push the uh, the troubles, as they call them, quote, mm-hmm. the troubles, the uh, the years of fighting going back and forth. So it's it's gonna definitely going to be interesting to see and take a look at. Yeah, I really appreciate you guys bringing up Ireland. I actually took a trip to Ireland way back when, when I was younger, and we learned a lot about the troubles and the political unrest. And it was a really dark time in history. And I do feel like this is for lack of better words, the perfect time for change to occur because we are in a period of transition. People don't really seem to be all that high on um, the turnover of the crown. I do feel like people were united under the queen for like symbolic reasons. They were like, oh, she's like the global grandma or something like that. But now that she's gone, people don't seem to be all that hot on going back to a monarchy state of being. Like people don't really want King Charles to like take control again. And I do think if change was going to happen, it's going to happen now. How it's going to happen, that's not my job to figure out. Not really sure what's going to go down there. I, I think it's important to note, I think like you said, Dallas, that you know it, it's good enough to appreciate things that you love and cherish, but it's also good to criticize those things because that means you really care for it to be better than it was mm-hmm. before. Uh, so I think issues in terms of colonialization, like you said, have to be reckoned with because people usually just be like, oh, we can push it to the side and all that. Like, you know, nothing's really going to happen. But you have to recognize those things as well. I know Barbados, for example. I know they split off, I think, a couple of months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know, actually, the interview that we're going to get to in about a couple seconds with that dr michelota i know we talked about aruba jamaica or two as well uh, that we're looking to possibly split off so definitely you know a lot of aspects there with that uh but certainly i think like you said mainly because the queen was just there for so long that Mm -hmm. you know well out of respect she's here and you know obviously at some point she was you know gonna she was 96 96 i also feel like we low-key like had an omen about it Yes, the morning we have a call. First, uh, so scary. It. First, to be very ominous. I think Danny was the one to really be mm-hmm. ominous on that. My friends, when like the news broke later in that day, they like listened to the show and they were like, "Dallas, did you do it?" I was like, "No, I did not." Our whole like, our whole chat blew up because exactly. we were talking about it not even you know four hours before. So it was it was surprising to say the least. I was I was shocked. I was shocked. It's something to keep watch of, certainly, when uh, anything goes down. I think certainly with, like you said, Ireland and Scotland and all of them, like that, that's going to be a pressing issue as well when mm-hmm. the time comes. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, ne- we do have, of course, the queen in terms of just, you know, the monarchy itself. But what about the management of the firm of the monarchy, being a family firm and all that? Uh, so I actually had an interview with Dr. Evelyn Rita Michelota over from the University of Ottawa. Uh, so that was pretty fun. So I got to go and work on that. And so we're going to take a listen now. As the ceremonies and engagements for Queen Elizabeth II continue throughout the United Kingdom, people will soon start looking to the role changes and organizational responsibilities that will change within the so-called workings of the firm. Here to talk about the managerial aspects of the monarchy going forward is Dr. Evelyn Rita Michelota, an associate professor in management of the Telfer School of Management at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Michelota, thank you for coming on today. Thank you very much for the invitation, Luke. So, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do at the University of Ottawa? 
Yeah, sure. As you said, uh, I am an associate professor uh, of family business uh, and in general management at the Telford School of Management at the University of Ottawa. I'm also a member of uh, FELI, which is the Family Enterprise Legacy Institute, which is an institute within Telford where we study uh, best practices and seek to become a, a knowledge hub for uh, family businesses, in particular the next generation. In my research, in general, General, I study institutions, uh, how they are maintained, how they change, and uh, so the passing of uh, Queen Elizabeth and the succession process uh, uh, of Prince Charles uh, to the role of king really touches upon two interests of mine. One is institutions and the other is family businesses and succession. And you mentioned that family business because, of course, the monarchy is like a you know a family in a sense, obviously in the hereditary aspect. So, as you mentioned, Correct. of course, um, King Charles had ascended to the throne now, assuming the responsibilities of Queen Elizabeth. So, how does that organizational structure within the family uh, change within either his day-to-day -day responsibilities and his role itself as a figurehead? Yeah, I mean, of course, Prince Charles, now King Charles III, is, is attracting uh, much attention uh, these days uh, because it, this is a historical change, of course. But to understand what Prince Charles, what King Charles III is going to have to do, I think we have to say a little bit more about what role uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth had. So in my view, from my perspective, Queen Elizabeth had an incredible role as an institutional guardian. So she was the guardian of the institutional the monarchy for 70 years. This means that institutions need protections. They are not always as strong as we think them. They are fragile. So they need to be protected uh, in order to keep their relevance. And this is exactly what Queen Elizabeth did. She put a lot of effort, uh, what we call, you know, in jargon, in academic jargon, institutional work. Uh, to make sure that the monarchy and its value will be perceived and preserved. And how did she do that? She basically, she repaired some tears due to family scandals. She was able to protect the rituals, the ceremonies, even when those ceremonies look very, very old, almost anachronistic. And, uh, you know, she also modernized to some extent the monarchy. So it could adapt to the changing world around and it could survive and maintain relevance. Now, King Charles III really has to do the same. It will have to do the same, but in an environment that changes uh, even more now that the UK uh, and the Commonwealth is increasingly diverse, is increasingly, uh, you know, there is also an idea that maybe the monarchy doesn't have that, that uh, the same value. So what, what he said that he will stop doing uh, is to dedicate time and time to the, the charities that he was very passionate about. What has been clear for the, the comments is that one thing he needs to stop doing, which is to voice his political opinions, his opinions in general about politics, about public affairs in public, because that is a no-no. It's something that it can have very serious consequences for him and for the monarchy. So in general, I think that he will spend more and more time on other public engagements, and he will 
probably stop voicing his opinion in public matters as this is the most advisable course of action. And obviously with Prince Charles's role change now to King Charles, we have now those few working royals that are left uh, within the family spectrum to hand out those other duties and responsibilities that either he had or Queen Elizabeth did. So what would you say the organizational impact for the monarchy is in terms of handing that over to, let's say, Prince William, uh, Princess Kate, and all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, this is not very clear uh, at this moment. Uh, I, I read uh, comments about how King Charles III has been working on being a sort of a silent uh, revolutionary, so he probably will want to slim down the monarchy quite a bit. That's what he meant because the monarchy is costing taxpayers uh, quite a bit and that has been uh, um, over the years you know there have been comments about whether it's still valuable so the idea is that probably he will try to uh, make changes uh, within the firm so within the organization of the monarchy uh, to try maybe to reduce waste and to maximize the work of the current royals but at the same time, I also um, think uh, I mean, the idea is that the royals are already working really, really hard. So apparently Williams and his wife, uh, Catherine, are spending a lot of time already working on their public engagement and other commitments. So I'm not sure with an even more slim monarchy what uh, he will be able to do. That has to be something that is going to change within maybe the organizational and the redundancy within the firm. Now, of course, the big question I think a lot of people usually have uh, is, of course, with uh, Prince Harry and Princess Meghan in terms of how much uh, they technically go and do their own roles within that if they do decide to come back uh, because of obviously the Queen's death or anything like that. So do you necessarily see them uh, having a place with the monarchy or the firm going forward? Or do you think in the structure of it, if they're slimming it down, that they're really going to be needed in a sense? So uh, the family dynamics have always been, uh, you know, very, very interesting in the royal family. And uh, to some extent, the queen has always put, at least in my opinion, uh, her duty and her role and responsibility above the family. Um, it is clear that uh, some decisions have been made um, that were detrimental for the family, but they were needed to preserve the integrity of the monarchy. Now, I think that the royal family is a family, so they have their quarrels, and the, the, the latest development with Harry and Meghan were just one example. I think based on what I read and what even King Charles said in his address, for now, at least, Harry and Meghan will continue to pursue their own interests and they will live overseas. They're financially independent. So I don't see in the near future any potential role in their uh, in the monarchy even if it's slimmed down but in the future because you know family ties never never die and uh, they they have demonstrated that they are still a quite united family or at least that that's the impression and that's the image that they wanted to portray um, to the people that they're still a family despite all the quarrels it might, there might be some opportunities of for of course in the future i also want to um, to make a comment about the role of uh, prince andrew 
uh, which you know, who after the scandals uh, uh, that that involved uh, you know his figure with Epstein, uh, has been stripped down of its uh, titles and and his uh, um, and his roles and responsibility. That's what the Queen did. She was very ruthless in doing that. Uh, so. There are very few people who actually in the monarchy uh, can keep doing the work. So that is something that King Charles III will definitely need uh, to take into account. So with everything being said, of course, as the overall of it, uh, where do you necessarily see the monarchy going forward? I know you already mentioned about King Charles trying to rein in his public charities, at least for his work and also his uh, political uh, opinions that he may have. Um, but what do you necessarily see them going forward, whether it is that structural breakdown, like you said, or anything else? This is, you know, a very, very interesting and important question. Maybe a king, Charles III, uh, when he was not king, when he was uh, still the Prince of Wales, uh, he thought that he, when his time would come, uh, he would probably make some some changes that he thinks are necessary. But these are very turbulent times. Uh, these are times where you know the the UK is going to nine percent inflation. There is a war, and uh, there is still COVID, you know, looming in uh, in uh, in the background. So I do think that at least for now, King Charles will try to uh, maintain the role that the monarchy has had so far. Under Queen Elizabeth, which basically is uh, to make sure that at time of division, at time of, of uncertainty, the the crown uh, is still considered what is uh, you know the, the the symbol of unity um, for uh, for the Commonwealth and for the UK. And uh, you know he will leave to the, the the messy process of democracy. You know the the new Prime Minister and uh, and uh, Downing Street uh, all the messiness. Uh, figuring out the democratic process, but the crown will remain that symbol. I think he will work really, really hard at maintaining the legacy uh, of, of his mother. Uh, of course, in the long term, I think you will think of uh, uh, innovating within the tradition, uh, which is something that many family firms do. So to try to keep the legacy, but at the same time, uh, give a unique spin to the monarchy that he has waited for so long, you know, to, to be the leader of. What would you say that unique spin is, if you had to say? I don't know. You know, that's a, that's a hundred uh, you know, million dollar question. I do think that he he he, he has to face a, a situation uh, that is probably a little bit different. It's going to be uh, growingly more intense for him. For example, there are already some uh, countries in the Commonwealth that now that Queen Elizabeth uh, has passed, uh, they they are already saying uh, that they don't want to be in the Commonwealth. Uh, Aruba and Antigua, Jamaica has sort of the same uh, sentiment. So I think that that this will be something we'll have to face. And maybe those countries didn't take any real step out of respect for Queen Elizabeth and for what she represented. But now that King Charles is, is the, the new face of the monarchy, they might go ahead. And of course, uh, uh, King Charles has also um, some some interest in, uh, you know, in farming, in architecture. Uh, so I think he will try, even though he will not voice his public opinion, he will try to work on those issues. So he will try to include his, his interest uh, into some practices and, and policies. 
definitely something to look into going forward when the time comes. Um, before we let you go, Dr. Michelle Oda, is there anything you'd like to add, uh, any way that our listeners can get involved or in, know about the work that you do over at the University of Ottawa? Oh, sure. Thank you for this uh, this opportunity, you know, to say that, that to promote the work that we're doing. So clearly, I'm a, you know, I'm a professor, so they can find me on my, uh, the faculty directory page. I'm on LinkedIn, and uh, there is my email address. And of course, uh, we have the, the Family and Legacy Institute uh, website. So if there are family businesses out there who uh, really are looking for a safe place where uh, they can learn about it themselves, they can learn with other family firms, and they want to use the, the our knowledge, uh, we are very, very happy to welcome them. So please uh, reach out and uh, feel free to be in touch. And again, that was Dr. Evelyn Rita Michelotta, an Associate Professor of Management at the Telford School of Management at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Michelotta, thank you again for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Duke. Hofstra's Morning Wake-Up Call. Morning Wake-Up Call. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, again, our thanks to Dr. Uh, Michelotta over there. She was great to talk to. Really interesting perspectives on the uh, on the management style uh, for the Royals and uh, where it really goes from there, which is definitely good to see, especially in any kind of family business and whatnot, because in theory, it is a business, as we say, uh, if that's the case. Otherwise, uh, I don't mean to, I guess... I guess um, bombard you all with interviews, but I had another interview that I did uh, this uh, week. Actually, not this weekend, yesterday, actually. It was at 6 o'clock at night because uh, it was with Dr. Michael Haas, uh, who uh, works over as a, a school psychologist a professor, uh, professor emeritus, I should add, of Chapman University. And so I spoke to him on New York State's uh, new initiative to try and get mental health days installed for excused absences uh, for primary and secondary students. Uh, so we will go and put that on for you now. As students continue to struggle with mental health challenges throughout the country, the New York State Assembly has introduced a bill that will allow mental health to be an excused absence for students throughout the state. Here to talk about the impacts of the bill and what it could mean going forward is Dr. Michael Haas, Professor Emeritus in Counseling and School Psychology from the Atala School of Educational Studies at Chapman University. Dr. Haas, thank you for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. So could you just tell a bit about yourself and the work that you do and specialize in? Well, as you mentioned, I'm a professor, I w- was a full-time professor of counseling and school psychology. So I primarily trained people at the master's and doctoral level to work as psychologists or counselors in schools. My interest kind of in, in that context has been counseling skills and on mental health in the schools and related sorts of topics. So in terms of this New York State Assembly bill that's going out, it would add the provision that, quote, mental or behavioral health of the student would be an excusable absence for the parameters set by the commissioner of education there. So what would the implications be of such a measure in the state or just in states in general? After looking it over and kind of thinking about it a little bit, I, I think on average it's a good thing. Right. And I think it's it's good in the sense that it sort of publicly communicates a kind of parity with between mental health issues and you know other kinds of reasons that kids might miss school because they have a cold or because they have some other kind of physical illness. So I think that's good that it, it kind of communicates that parity and it also maybe helps to normalize mental and behavioral health issues and maybe helps in, in a small way to reduce stigma. I, th- I think it potentially could do those things, or at least it's a step in that direction. At the same time, I thought, well, is taking a day off an intervention? Let's put it that way. And so how much actual help will it provide students? And that I 
I'm really uncertain of. I think there are probably lots of kids that benefit from a day off, but I suspect that those kids aren't necessarily the kids that are really struggling with say, anxiety disorders or depression or uh, other kinds of things. It's a mixed bag in a way, good in, some, good in what it communicates, but an open question as to whether or not it will make a huge difference in the mental health of students. Let's put it that way. And as you say, a mixed bag, it's also a mixed bag for states that are implementing these as well, as 12 states have already added mental health absences to their laws, uh, with five mental health days usually being allocated uh, for the students there. So why do you see a change happening now in terms of states recognizing students' mental health in this way? Well, when I read the the five mental health days, I thought, well, that's a that's an interesting parameter. And it made me wonder, are there similar kinds of parameters for other kinds of, you know, excused absences. In other words, do you get five days for a cold or five days, you know, or six days for uh, some other thing that you have? So I, I thought that was kind of funny that it would, in a way, sort of take out mental health and make it different than other reasons for being absent from school. So I, I was a little uncomfortable with that because um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure why, what, what would be the rationale for doing it that way? It's a little unclear to me. Now, why are people thinking about this? I think that the, the pandemic and the consequences of the pandemic, the social isolation, the disruption of routine, the grief that comes from not only maybe perhaps having somebody in your family be very ill or pass away, really the loss of kind of normal life, all those things have sort of accentuated uh, mental health issues uh, for kids. And I think when I talk to teachers or to school administrators and people like that, they, they all seem to be acutely aware of the difference students' mental health problems are, are far more, seem to be far more apparent to them, to ordinary educators than they were before. So that, I think that kind of leads to some uh, pressure on legislative bodies to take some kind of action that, uh, that will be helpful. So I think that's probably why those 12 states, including New York, have taken action to do something about that. And Dr. Haas, you mentioned the pandemic as being an instance of how people are accounting for students' mental health, as the Pew Research Center had reported that during the pandemic itself, uh, 37% of students in high school had, quote, felt their mental health was not good most or all of the time, end quote. So what would you say the pandemic, as you've already mentioned, uh, certain instances of maybe having a death in the family and things like that, but what are the future implications for students down the road uh, with the pandemic and their mental health? Well, you know, two things come to mind. I, I think the pandemic has undoubtedly made things worse for, for a lot of kids. But the, the truth is that uh, mental health issues have been an important issue and much more prevalent than was spoken about for years predating the pandemic. I mean, there's a common statistic that's, uh, that's talked about where about one in, one of every five kids in a given calendar year, have a diagnosable mental health condition. Well, that was true 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So I think what's what's probably happened with the pandemic is that there was, you know, among those kids, already a very large number of kids that were in some way struggling with mental health issues, those kids who were perhaps um, because they had supportive parents or good insurance or, you know, they were getting good treatment, they were sort of hanging in there. And then the pandemic really disrupted a lot of uh, of those support systems that helped kids 
who perhaps were already struggling, but as I said, sort of hanging in there and doing okay, it sort of made things worse for them. So I think aside from that, I think for some families, you know, kids kids did okay, right? So you know, if you think about a family where that works well enough, right? I'm not talking about some sort of super performing family, but just a, an ordinary family that where things work pretty well. You know, you you have kids that spent more time with their siblings, spent more time with their parents, people had meals together, teachers were more flexible. So those were all good things. And I think some kids actually benefited from that. But then there were other kids and adults, by the way, not just kids in this case. But there were other uh, kids that the pandemic enormously uh, isolating. They were their their social support systems were completely disrupted, and the things that they they had enjoyed about school they weren't able to participate in. They weren't able to interact a lot with. I mean, having classes on virtual classes is 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 okay, <laughs> but it's certainly no substitute for for live instruction and direct interaction, especially for mental health. I think. You definitely have a lot of a push and pull over there in terms of how you accommodate for those things. But it's good. It's good to hear that people could also have some benefits, but also a lot of drawbacks from it as well. So it's good to. You know, I teach crisis intervention, and one of the assumptions, you know, when somebody's going through a really difficult thing, is that re resilience is actually the norm, right? I mean, given any particular situation, more more people will eventually kind of achieve a kind of equilibrium and, and go back, carry on with their lives than people who will be, who will struggle in the long term. And I think that's probably true of the pandemic as well. You know, as we get back to, quote, normal routines and kids begin to reconnect uh, with their teachers and with their friends, you know, a lot of them will even if they're feeling quite anxious now or they're, they're, they've been depressed, a lot of them will really begin to feel better. But that leaves still a, a lot of work to be done with those kids who maybe won't be you know, getting better right away. I know Dr. Haas, you already mentioned about the pandemic and things like that. But of course, in your work and being a school psychologist, teaching school psychology, what would you necessarily say is the most pressing issue for students and their mental health concerns right now? Well, um, I think that the level of anxiety among kids and to be honest, among adults as well, is is, is actually quite extraordinary. I, I see it, you know, or, or saw it in my graduate students. And so these are people who are pretty high functioning. They're studying, you know, to, to be uh, school psychologists, school counselors, clinical counselors. Uh, so they're pretty sophisticated and they seem to walk around with an enormous amount of stress, not all of which seemed obviously uh, warranted, <laughs> if, if, if you know what I mean. So I think that that the sort of anxiety, anxiety about the future, anxiety about, you know, what what's a sort of existential anxiety about what's meaningful. You think of all the people who have decided that they're, they're uh, leaving their jobs and moving on to something else. Um, I think that's part of it as well, sort of people reevaluating their lives. But in schools, I think that anxiety and depression are probably the most important issues that will, we'll, that for those, those people who work in schools and with, uh, parents that's what we'll be dealing with certainly shows that it transcends a lot of boundaries over there not only just for high schools but anywhere in general um, before we let you go dr haas is there anything you'd like to add uh anything you'd like to mention or just how our listeners can get in touch with you if that's the case 
Oh, <laughs> well, if you want to get in touch with me, you're, you're welcome to email me. I'm at m h a s s m haas at chapman.edu. So I think the thing, thing I would add is that, like the pandemic in general, or any really public health crisis, and as you know, the Surgeon General came out. Uh, well, it's been a, a couple months ago now, but and you know, really stated that we're we're facing a mental health crisis among our youth. And so I think there's not only a need uh, for more well-trained mental health professionals, but like with any pandemic I mean, or any crisis like the pandemic, uh, it wasn't just doctors who responded to the pandemic. You know, it was nurses. It was people who uh, uh, did contact tracing. There, it was pharmacists. It was there were lots and lots of people who were involved in responding to the crisis. And I think we need to look at the mental health crisis, if I can use that word, in the same way. It's it's not just about getting more uh, counselors and therapists in the schools, although we do need to do that. It's also about having getting everybody on board. My particular interest right now is teachers because I see teachers as being kind of frontline, uh, in a sense they're frontline mental, mental health professionals even though they may not think of themselves that way. And my colleague and I are doing some training for teachers and we've recently written a book for teachers on student mental health that uh, serendipitously came out right about the same time that everybody was coming back to school. So I think that's a, a a kind of important issue is how can we get other people involved, both in the community and in schools. Again, that was Dr. Michael Haas, a professor emeritus in counseling and school psychology from the Atola School of Educational Studies at Chapman University. Dr. Haas, again, thank you for joining us and have a good day. Thank you very much for having me. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, again, special thanks to uh, Dr. Haas over there. Actually just retired this year. He did 25 years uh, over there at Chapman. Congratulations so to him. Yes, he was very excited. He had um, a nice casual shirt on that he actually got gifted from uh, because he retired over there, which was nice. Uh, so that was good. Otherwise, we actually had a very fruitful discussion uh, during the interview a little bit because Ronnie actually had some news uh, in terms of snow days for students, not only um, just for, I guess, educational-wise, but anything else. So go ahead, Ronnie. Well, we were talking about mental health days for students, and honestly, I think everybody here can agree that the best mental health day for us growing up was definitely the snow days, but it's not looking too good for New York. As of, according, actually, according to New York City School Chancellor David C. Banks, he reported at the beginning of the 2022-2023 school year this past week that there are technically no more snow days, that according to what happened during the pandemic and all the new technology that's been put out, when a snow day does come around, it is now just going to be on Zoom or virtual. However, the schools managed to get it done. And that brings the question to me, what happens for all these mental health days for students? If we're pushing for that, what happens to the teachers? What if they don't have anything planned for that day because they were, you know, betting on the snow day or they're used to having a snow day in this type of weather? Not to mention all the people, all the kids that may not have access to, uh, to technology. Yeah, there's definitely that aspect over there with that. I know in my interview with uh, Dr. Grady Wilburn a number of weeks ago, uh, it definitely showed a lot of, I guess, lower performing uh, with tests and whatnot if you didn't have access to a computer, especially when it came to the online environment, just learning through COVID. Uh, so that was definitely an issue there. I know here at Hofstra, like now we don't really have any snow days either. It's mm -hmm. like you either your professor doesn't have class at all or you do class anyways, even though there's, you know, a couple feet of snow on the ground. Uh, so you have to kind of make it work nonetheless. Um, but even if 
it's in New York, if it's in a rural area like Nebraska or something or Wyoming, I know one of my friends lives in Wyoming. And for her, it's like you can barely get internet access because you're in the mountains, you're in a rural area. And then in the event something happens, you can't get access to anything or have that opportunity. So it also brings a lot of those uh, socioeconomic issues as well and disparities too. Yeah, I think I understand why we might want to make that move. Snow days do eat up days in the school year. It makes you have to go longer in the summer. However, it is a big issue when it comes to debating the accessibility and the equitability of making this decision. You are betting on the fact that families can either afford to have tools for online earn learning. They can afford to up the price of like spending on their internet connection. Um, back in 2021, from the Pew Research Center, 26% of home broadband users say that they are worried a lot or some about paying for their high-speed internet connection at home over the next few months. Because when we made the switch to being on Zoom, remote learning, things like that, you had to be on an internet connection for a lot longer than people usually were. So that is an increased price. So you're just betting on families to be able to afford or be able to have access to all those things. And if you're a family that doesn't, how does that affect your child's experience with education? How does that affect your child's daily like motions like how, how are we going to see kids progress if they can't get online for school and then it's development wise too because you know you think of the prime development times mm -hmm. of children and even in high school middle school still really influential time and not having that access or interacting with people definitely doesn't help especially in an in-person environment i mm -hmm. feel is usually beneficial there but certainly that developmental aspect definitely gets hindered by that if anything else oh 100 and we think we're talking about well access to technology at home with you know what you how much you have to pay for an internet connection and technology but now think about how much that pushes tuition for actual for uh, for schools you brought up high school i know my high school when i started tuition was around maybe ten thousand dollars for the year but we did not have the technology tax for chromebooks mm -hmm. now that's starting to roll out tuition now is around maybe thirteen fourteen thousand dollars because of all the technology that they're putting out and it's just again it comes to expecting families to be able to meet that cost or meet that demand and it's highly unfair like we know that access like access is an issue in this country and talking about more rural areas again this is only this is happening in new york right now but if this does spread to across the country we need to improve the systems that are in place that don't let access happen because i know in rural areas internet scarce not reliable how are you going to expect people to be able to log on to zoom and do school if they don't have the internet connection as like an infrastructure issue it's definitely something to look out for again. I always say that, looking out for things, uh, if that's the case. Uh, otherwise, though, uh, Jason, I know you have your report uh, for us, so if you just want to give a quick little intro for it. Sure. So this week, I had a little bit of trouble picking a topic, but I talked to Danny DiCrescenzo, obviously, the, the man himself, and we came up with the idea, let's ask Hofstra students what their favorite movie is. And I was surprised, but a lot of people had trouble picking a favorite. So without further ado, I think we're ready to listen to it now. Did you know the Guinness Book of World Records' oldest film is called Roundhay Garden Scene? Dating back to 1888, it's the oldest surviving motion picture of actual consecutive action on film. However, it's only 2.11 seconds. What's the topic of discussion after such a random intro? Movies! Yeah! <laughs> Movies have the power to inspire, scare, excite, amuse, and so much more. It's a multi-billion dollar industry that has been a pivotal piece of world culture since its mainstream popularity began in the 1920s. As of right now, it's believed that there are around 500,000 movies currently in existence. 
With so many movies out there and so many different genres, I decided I wanted to investigate what the typical Hofstra student thinks about movies. More specifically, what is their favorite movie? Let's see what they have to say. Hi, I'm Cora Eason, and I think my favorite movie is Knives Out or uh, one of the Ghibli films, uh, Nausicaa Valley of the Wind. And why is one of those movies your favorite? Well, Knives Out is uh, fun to rewatch, and it's just like great writing, directing, adding, acting, all of it. And Nausicaa Valley of the Wind was a childhood favorite, and I just really love like the message and art of the film. Do you have a favorite actor in any movies or films? I'm bad at actors' names. One of the... Well, before he passed, I loved Robin Williams in almost every movie he was in. My name is Diana Torres, and my favorite movie is Caroline. How come? Because of the scenery that it provides and the amount of emotion that it has made me feel. And why do you like movies? Because it's all in one. You don't have to wait for the next episode. Hi, I'm Debo, and my favorite movie is maybe Step Brothers, but I'm more of a comedy horror guy. Okay, so do you have a favorite horror comedy in particular? Uh, not really like a mix. I like more like individual. Like. So what do you like specifically about horror movies or comedies? They give you kind of an escape from life? Uh, horror movies, uh, I like the, the shock when uh, they're like jump scares or maybe like the plot. But comedies, I'm more just, it's something to, to watch while I try to relax. Favorite scene from Step Brothers? I don't know. Maybe when they fight in like the room after about the drums. Um, my name's Sofia Kofsky and I don't really have a favorite movie, but I really like to watch rom-coms in general. Is there any reason why in particular rom-coms? I just like them. I don't know. Sorry. Do you have a top three of rom-coms? I like don't like watch the same movie twice because like I don't can't pay attention when like it's repetitive. So like I watch it once and I'm like that was good and then like I never watch it again. So Would you say you find a comfort in rom coms? Yeah. Which do you like more, the comedy or the romance? The comedy. Uh, Carson Roberts, and my uh, favorite movie has to be has to be between the Purge series or the original Iron Man movie. How come? Uh, just because I feel like the Iron Man one. It was when Marvel was a lot better. It actually felt like Marvel, not like it was today. And the Purge movies, I don't know. They were just cool. <laughs> Are you a fan of horror? Uh, yeah. Mainly psychological horrors that are like the ones that you never know what's going to happen, you know? It's like suspenseful. Here with Caleb Rockhill. Caleb, what's your favorite movie? My favorite movie is The French Dispatch by Wes Anderson. Any reason in particular? Um, I just saw it in theaters. I just have a very good experience seeing it. Um, it was the first Wes Anderson movie I saw on the big screen. And I thought it was charming and light and I really enjoyed it. Anything about Wes Anderson in particular that you like? Yeah, I like the the straight angle shots. I think that it's kind of absurdly funny in a lot of ways. Um, very slapstick at times, but also very subtle at others. I just really like the blend of that. While walking around campus, I realized there was a very special guest who was able to join me and weigh in on their favorite. Here with none other than President Poser, what's your favorite movie? I have a few, but I think the most enjoyable movie that I love watching over and over is Legally Blonde. 
Uh, but I also like some old movies, like there used to be one called Diva, and there used to be one called The Return of Martin Gare, which is a French movie. Is there any overarching theme as to why you like those movies in particular? No, I don't think they fit together very well <laughs> at all, but I do like them. It seems as though many students can't pick one favorite movie, let alone even a top three. This is a tough question to answer, and with so many choices, it is quite difficult to decide. What I do know is those that have a favorite can immediately name it. With our world shifting back towards post-COVID life and movie theaters making their long-awaited comeback, maybe it's time you consider going back to a movie theater and maybe even discovering a new favorite movie. For Morning Wake Up Call, I'm Jason White. Enjoying the show? Make sure to tune in every weekday from 8 to 9 a.m. for some more Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. Only on 88.7 FM Radio Hofstra University. Welcome back to the Wake Up Call, everybody. Jason, we were we were all very surprised you got President Poser on the uh, on the what interview. Fine, the icon fine. herself. Yes. Very lucky. <laughs> you know, hey, you never know. You find people on the street everywhere, so it, it's good to see. But uh, uh, Dallas, I know you have your Emmy uh, news you want to share out. I am a big Emmy person. So this past Monday, Zendaya became the youngest person to ever win two Emmy Awards for acting. At 26 years old, Zendaya returned the Primetime Emmy Awards to take home her second honor for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series, a title she won in 2020 for the same role for her portrayal of Rue Bennett in the HBO hit Euphoria. When she won the first award at 24, she was the youngest lead actress winner in history. But Monday night was not only a moment of personal triumph, it was an important moment in cultural history. This award was not, has now solidified Zendaya as the first black woman to win the lead actress category twice since the Emmys first began in 1949. Furthermore, Zendaya is only one of two black actresses to ever win for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series, the first being Viola Davis, who made history in 2015 for her role in How to Get Away with Murder. So I'm a big fan of the Emmys, just kind of wanted to talk about the Emmys and how important it was for Zendaya to go back to back. I know, I'm a big Zendaya fan. I remember the old days of Shake It Up, Casey Undercover, mm-hmm. you know, that was that was the start. We, we were there from the beginning for her, which is great. And just the, the fact she's now with Spider-Man, which is a huge series, of course. Um, of course, would have been Disney, but Sony has it, and so it's that weird thing that's going yeah. on there. Uh, but hey, we got the multiverse, so maybe she'll be back in the, uh, I guess, the Disney aspect of all of that. Uh, but no, it's great to see her succeed. It's really, you know, fortunate to know that you have um, a lot of actors. I know you mentioned, of course, before as well, uh, for Abbott Elementary was a big deal. Such a good show. For the Such big wins at the Emmys. Uh, and Ronnie, anything else to add or? Uh, okay. Admittedly, I did not watch the Emmys, and as of right now, I haven't watched Euphoria, but honestly, that do- that doesn't take away anything from Zendaya. Like, no matter your opinion on, like, the shows, or she, you gotta tip the cap. It was, it's an incredible achievement, and she definitely deserves it, if there's anybody that does. It, it is something to dance for, if uh, that is the... <laughs> oh my gosh, hey, Luke! laying that one up. Uh, anyways, any, anything we have planned for the weekend? Anything we're looking to do? Um, we do have an event day on Sunday, Luke. Yes, open houses. If you all are coming down, we have about uh, 600 guests we're looking to show up, so about 1,800 people overall uh, going to be on campus. It's always really fun. We're trying to get back into, uh, I guess, pre-pandemic open houses if we can. I know we're showing uh, Constitution as a residence hall, so that's mm-hmm. going to be fun. Uh, but definitely a lot of work and early mornings, just like the morning wake-up call. Let's go Team A, 7.30 a.m. 
So if uh, if you all want to tune in for the Morning Wake Up Call again, I know we do have the Friday edition coming up, uh, so we'll be looking forward to that. Dallas actually had something on rail workers. We're going to see if that gets in uh, tomorrow, possibly, uh, if that's the case, if they want to go and throw that on there. Otherwise, enjoy the week, everybody. Have a good time. We will see you next Thursday to close us out because it is, you know, the Emmy Awards and you have to be a superstar. Uh, here's Superstar by Lupe Fiasco.